Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. For today's episode, I've invited a neurology colleague, Dr. Fanny Elahi, to talk with me. She has spent the past few years doing research and providing clinical care at the UCSF Memory and Aging Center, where she specializes in what we doctors sometimes call white matter disease, which is a type of degeneration and damage that can affect the brain. This is often closely related to problems with the brain's smaller blood vessels and has been associated with vascular dementia and other significant problems that affect older adults. Dr. Alahi is an assistant professor of neurology at UCSF. I first wrote about signs of white matter changes on my website a year and a half ago in an article titled Cerebral Small Vessel Disease and it rapidly became the most visited page on the site. And that's because white matter changes are a very common finding when we get MRIs or CAT scans of the brains of older adults. In fact, one study of older adults aged 60 to 90 found that 95% of them showed signs of these changes on brain MRI. Since this is such a common finding in aging brains, I think it's important for older adults and their families to better understand what white matter changes are and what they might mean for an older person's health. So I'm just so delighted to have Dr. Alahi join us today. She's really an expert in this in our UCSF Memory and Aging Center, and I'm thrilled that she can be here to help us learn more about this common condition and how it relates to the health of the brain of older adults. Fanny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. It's an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Um, This is a topic that is near and dear to Uh, my research and clinical practice both, and I think a topic of great importance for the aging population. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background as a doctor and the kind of training you did, and also how you became interested in this particular aspect of brain health and aging. Okay. So I'm a clinician scientist, and as you explained, uh, this really means that I see patients and do research both. And the focus of my research became white matter disease because when I completed residency in neurology a few years ago now, I realized that this is a common phenomenon, underappreciated, poorly understood on a molecular level. And that means we um, did not know exactly how it occurs, why it occurs, and what to do to prevent it. While we also started understanding its association with risk of cognitive changes and ultimately, really down down the line, dementia. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the most frustrating thing about it is that we saw it, we, the way I see it is sort of like this tip of the iceberg, you know, this phenomena that we see on imaging. But it it can be related to so much underneath that surface, 
so many different phenomena, molecular phenomena, can, can eventually lead to this change that we see on brain MRI. And therefore, we cannot treat all of the white matter hyperintensities the same. Right. And so if we, we see it in a patient and we want to recommend some changes, it's not going to be the same for everyone because it really depends on what got them there. Right. So right. the two factors, one being this being very common and two, uh, our poor understanding of what to do about it really motivated me to make it the goal of my career. So did you start off studying dementias and cognitive issues and then got focused on this aspect that is related to the health of the brain vessels? Or did you start off more because, you know, blood vessels in the brain are related to strokes more broadly? Did you start off kind of studying stroke and then you got focused on this aspect that's especially related with sometimes changes in memory and thinking and other health concerns in older people? Yes. So my entry point into studying cognition and neurodegenerative disorders, disorders of brain degeneration uh, and dementias was actually white matter disease. And the starting point was, as you said, vascular, because it's typically uh, wrongfully so really gets equated with vascular disease. So during residency, I was going to do a stroke fellowship. I was going to become a stroke doctor because I was really fascinated with white matter uh, lesions. And then a chance meeting with Dr. Bruce Miller at the Memory and Aging Center just clicked the switch in my head. And I realized that vascular is just one of the underlying um, etiologies of white matter changes. And that if I were to really understand brain aging and degenerative disorders affecting white matter, I ought to broaden my understanding and grasp of all, of all degenerative brain changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I started my fellowship here at the Memory and Aging Center, I realized that it's really not just vascular disease that gives rise to white matter hyperintensities and so many other uh, diseases also include this. Right. It's multifactorial. Absolutely. is the case for many things that affect older adults. Well, I want you to go into more detail on that in a bit, but maybe before we do that, we can just cover some basic definitions for the audience. Now, we've mentioned the word vascular, which means related to blood vessels, and they can be in a variety of parts of the body. But we've also talked about white matter disease, white matter lesions. You know, I had difficulty when I wrote the article about it, deciding what to call it. I chose cerebral small vessel disease, but as I explained the article, there's a variety of terms that are often used, especially in radiology report to refer to these changes. But why don't we have you talk a little bit about how you explain what is white matter disease? That sounds good. You raise a really um, important and critical problem in the field in that there are, we have, I think there was actually an article published counting up to 30 different terms um, that are associated or directly referring to white matter changes on imaging. And uh, that really fragments uh, a process that could be understood uh, in a much simpler and more practical way. So I like the term white matter disease because white matter disease could be associated with signal changes on brain MRI, which is really the most typical uh, presentation of white matter disease. And that's the white matter hyperintensities on brain um, MRI. And really briefly, tell us, what is the white matter of the brain? So white matter of the brain is is 
that in of itself is several different cell types that form the white matter. So you have the neurons, you know, the main um, brain cells Mm -hmm. up to now recognizes the main brain cells, but that is also rapidly changing. Uh, We have a much better appreciation of all the other cell types in the brain that are also contributing to brain function in a very critical way. And I'll get into that in a bit. But so take the neurons, which are are the main brain cells um, up to recently, and their connections called axons, Around these connections, and you can think of them as wires, you know, connecting different parts of the brain. Around these wires, there's insulation. Think of it as the plastic around your electric cords. And that is essentially myelin. Mm -hmm. It's a fatty product. It's the extension of cells called oligodendroglia cells. Mm -hmm. These are thought as support cells. And one of their main functions is to create insulation for the axons of these neurons. And uh, in doing so, one of the the big effects is speeding up communication between the cells. Mm -hmm. So the white matter is, for the most part, this myelin insulation that covers the axons and both protects them and supports them so that they do their work more effectively. Right. Except that when we look at a brain imaging scan, like an MRI, and and we look at the signal change, it may not necessarily be only a myelin damage or at all a myelin damage. Mm. So the other cells right around this white matter, so to speak, is are astrocytes, other support cells, and other types of glia cells that cannot be distinguished on MRI from this white matter structure when you when you have the signal change in the in the in the myelin, so to speak. So the, and the reason why I raise this is that white matter hyperintensity on brain imaging could actually be a process that's affecting the glia cells as opposed to the myelin predominantly. It's hard to say that the myelin would not get affected because it's right there and then it's right next to the glia cells, but it could not be at the very heart of the disease process in certain cases. Well, it sounds like, and I'll put a link to the main article in the show notes, but I had found this image from the British Medical Journal, which was licensed Creative Commons, that shows mild, moderate, and severe white matter changes. And so in it, you can see that on an MRI, the brain looks you know, mostly light gray, but there are these brighter white spots because this entry point for many of us, either as patients or as regular clinicians, is that you get the scan. And if you see the images, you can see these bright white spots, which are often called white matter hyperintensities because they're brighter, I guess, in their white intensity than the rest. Or in the actual radiology report, they might say that they see some white matter changes or some white matter hyperintensities, or they've also used other terms like chronic ischemic white matter disease of aging, small vessel ischemic disease. And what you're saying is that those terms may or may not really reflect what is changing at the cells, but usually it starts off with us seeing these brighter white spots on the brain. Exactly. And these brighter white spots, the white matter hyperintensities, uh, are that tip of the iceberg. Right. And, and up to the, the white matter ischemic changes, I think that's when we're doing a leap. You know, yeah. That's when we are we are essentially making a huge assumption about the underlying etiology. Right. Now, ischemia 
means, uh, well, why don't you tell us what ischemia means and ischemic changes? I will take a stab, but I'm sure, Leslie, your explanation is going to be better. But um... (laughs) Only because I'm less knowledgeable. You suffer from a greater (laughs) curse of knowledge than I do. (laughs) So um, ischemia is really lack of blood flow. Um, And so you can have two types of ischemia and the typical one, really the one that has gotten the most press, we're most familiar with, and potentially the more dramatic change is stroke. And that pertains to an acute decline in, in blood flow to a region of the brain that then causes damage and, and, and death uh, and eventually results in death of, of brain cells. Mm-hmm. That's the acute type of ischemia. We also have a more chronic um, sort of insidious, slowly progressive and therefore potentially silent for a very long time type of ischemia where there is diminished blood flow or perfusion as we call it to regions of the brain or potentially even the whole brain. And that can relate to the disease of the smallest of vessels that we cannot see on brain imaging, but that control in a, in a quite a fundamental way how our brain is perfused on a cellular level, right? Where it really matters. Yeah, and so this sounds related to the process of what some people may have heard of atherosclerosis, where you know the walls of your arteries, your blood vessels, whether they're larger ones or smaller ones, can become kind of inflamed or irritated or thickened, and then the blood doesn't flow through as well. And the kind of you know analogy that sometimes is made is of you know pipes. Right. And that if the inside of the pipe gets all thickened or gunked up or corroded, then you can't have the flow that you want. And that flow of blood is really essential to um, all the cells in our body, but our brain is especially dependent on good blood flow. It needs oxygen and nutrients and the such. Yeah. And that was that that's the key uh, analogy, the the piping. Um, You mentioned one type of pipe, the large one where Mm -hmm. you can have atherosclerosis. But the smaller one we would call arteriolosclerosis, Mm -hmm. which are the smaller blood vessels, and then even smaller at the the level of essentially microns, it's capillaries, it's the end vessels. And those we really have no imaging for, but we have, you know, these surrogate uh, findings on different types of imaging or uh, biochemical studies that we use in order to gauge their function. So ischemia can arise from disease of any caliber of vessel. Mm-hmm. And just because an individual's larger vessels are not disease doesn't mean that their smaller vessels are, are fine. Yeah. And then we've talked about the ischemia, so sort of not enough flow or a blockage in flow, but sometimes blood vessels also leak, right? Absolutely. And that's called hemorrhage or hemorrhagic lesions. So that is a type of stroke. I think it's less common, right? That kind of stroke that's mostly based on hemorrhaging rather than ischemia. But similarly, for the very small vessels, do they also sometimes leak? Yeah. So the hemorrhage is really when the vessel is ruptured in a significant way and blood comes out in in quantities that we can see Mm -hmm. on on brain imaging. Uh, The leakage that you refer to 
is one that, again, I think is, is a fundamental process that we need to understand better, wrap our heads around it, and find therapies for because it happens with aging. And it, again, it's insidious and silent. And I think insidious and silent for me equals let's get on it. And if, if we have this window of opportunity to intervene uh, and, and therefore potentially stop the downstream side effects. Right. So the leakage is, think of it as like, you know, droplets or, or a little bit is getting out. Mm-hmm. And what's leaking is not necessarily blood, but blood products. Mm-hmm. In recent years, Work from labs here, Katerina Akasaglu and others um, have shown that there are things like fibrinogen, uh, which is a protein that is involved in blood clotting and necessary, really, because once you, if we ha- if we cut ourselves, we need to stop the bleeding. So very necessary. Mm-hmm. But due to the leakage of these small blood vessels in the brain, fibrinogen, along with other things such as albumin, again, very necessary in our blood, get in the brain. When they get in the brain, because of the leakage, they are not welcome. And there are all sorts of reactions that brain cells have to these proteins that are detrimental and problematic. Yeah, those proteins kind of are meant to be in our bloodstream. And it sounds like when they get out, they're basically irritating to the brain cells around them. So I guess to recap before we get more into this. So the white matter is the substance kind of covering the axons. And the white matter disease are, you know, problems affecting that. And we especially see them as brighter white spots on brain imaging. Super, super common as people get older, so present on the scans of the majority of older people. And then it sounds like cerebral small vessel disease is kind of a subset of things that might cause those spots in the white matter. And then I also want to just highlight two words you used earlier, which were insidious and silent Mm -hmm. and comparing that to acute. So for us as doctors, an acute event is something that kind of suddenly happens and makes somebody suddenly obviously ill or unwell or changed. Whereas a lot of things that are going wrong with the body are happening little by little. And that's part of why we call them insidious is because they happen little by little and you almost don't notice them happening at first. Like aging. Like aging (laughs) or like arthritis or (laughs) like cataracts. But then also that the issue of silence, I wanted to make sure we clarified what that means to us as doctors. Absolutely. And before um, I answer those questions, I just wanted to briefly mention a picture that I think of when I think of white matter hyperintensity and sort of really brings all these concepts together. Think of it as scarring. Mm. You have a scab, you have a scar in your brain. That's really what it is. Mm. Beyond that, just looking at the picture, we don't know why you have that scar. Mm. And then as, as our podcast goes forth, maybe we'll tap into other pathways other than small vessel disease that can cause that. But all the different components and all these different cells can contribute to this scarring. Mm -hmm. All these different types of brain cells can be irritated in different ways by different causes, such as the leakage of these proteins and cause the scarring. Mm -hmm. Once the scarring happens, there could be some healing underneath, but this this scar will show on brain imaging. Mm. So so you could have, and this now links back to your question of acute versus insidious and silent, you could have, say, a small little stroke 
right? So not just this chronic leakage or lack of perfusion, but a complete stop to the blood flow to a region of your brain, end up with cell death, reactive changes in the brain and a scar. Or you could have a phenomena by which you leak a lot of these different proteins into your brain. You have this irritation, as you mentioned, you have a scar that forms and then proceeds a healing process whereby you have reconstitution of some of these brain structures, but you end up seeing this scar on the imaging, right? Mm -hmm. And so the symptoms that are associated are really as much related to what caused that scar as to how much healing did you undergo afterwards. And that's why, you know, uh, we could be alarmed by white matter changes or we could not. And we could say this is completely appropriate amount of white matter changes um, expected for age. Mm-hmm. Because as we talked about it, aging is yet another um, insidious process, slowly progressive, uh, quote unquote, silent, right? Right. And with aging, all of our brain structures, including vasculature, um, and myelin age. And so there's there's some amount of scarring that occurs, but it's really an extent where in the brain, what are the symptoms, what other associated findings are there that then warrant you know, further workup or um, things to do versus just you know ignore. Great. I'm so glad you clarified that. So very briefly, when as clinicians, when we say silent, we sometimes mean that there are no obvious symptoms or changes Absolutely. associated with something that we might see when we look in the microscope or at the scan or at the laboratory results. Now, since almost everyone develops some white matter changes with aging, and you know now people often get their heads scanned, and now I think increasingly people get access to their reports, which I think you know, used to be less common. So people are learning they have this. And so how can they know when they should be concerned or get, you know, a diagnosis or more evaluation versus attribute it to just normal aging? So this is, um, this is where my two hats separate from each other. The clinician hat, uh, the more sort of practical, now what are we going to do about this from a, from a clinical perspective? Um, would say... So practicing doctor perspective. Practicing doctor perspective, exactly. So, you know, if the radiologist read it as appropriate or expected for age, chances are, you know, if you trust that radiologist, which hopefully we can, most radiologists, then this is something they've seen very, very commonly um, in patients that did not have symptoms or concerns. And it's it's called incidental finding. Mm -hmm. And... From a probabilistic perspective, that's probably fine. From a re- now, I'm going to put on my research hat, and I think one thing that we're realizing, and there's been a huge paradigm shift in the field, is that once someone has dementia, they have dementia. We really need to understand stages of aging and disease that are preclinical or during that silent period. 
So there, it's actually before they have dementia, or if it's somebody who's going to maybe develop dementia, or if we're thinking about that possibility. Exactly. Or actually, a lot of older people who've had their head scanned, there has been some concern of maybe not definite dementia, but you know, people are wondering, is their thinking okay, right? Right. If that's happening, then there are some clinical concerns, and um, we want to now work up you know, underlying potential reasons, right? But say in the case scenario, I'll take the, an extreme that there hasn't been any concern. They did an MRI because they had headaches, for instance, or something of that sort. And then this, this change was seen. Even then, I actually recommend, well, if they have the option of enrolling in research projects, because I think one thing that I'd like to communicate is that we're realizing as a field that we want to study aging as um, the biggest risk factor for degenerative brain changes, right? Right. So even if someone doesn't have a genetic predisposition, a family history, just by virtue of aging, understanding the process of brain aging will help us understand how the brain gets predisposed to degeneration that would be more rapid, such as in degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, for instance. Mm -hmm. So white matter diseases for me are, you know, injury to the brain. Now they could be completely normal injuries, such as with age, you know, the joints are getting a little stiffer. They could be kind of wear and tear, just wear and tear. Things got a little older or we, um, I actually just had John Newman, my geriatrics colleague, who's a geroscientist on the podcast mm -hmm. two episodes ago. And he was explaining that at the cellular level, you both age and things wear a little bit worse, but also that the repair mechanism exactly. gets less effective and that that's a huge part of aging. It's just that your body's less good at repairing all those little things going wrong. Right. And the researcher hat that I wear really believes that we need to understand that. That's our chance of understanding processes that are critical for brain health. And that if we are able to optimize one, diminish injury and optimize repair of this, the white matter, for instance, then we're going to diminish the risk of someone progressing to a frank degenerative syndrome, such as Alzheimer's disease. Right. So there are two things. I would provide reassurance um, to, as a clinician to say that it's extremely common. This is what happens with aging to a lot of people. But then also, if you have a significant amount of white matter changes on the brain imaging, and you're interested, there are lots of research projects that are ongoing that are trying to understand exactly this. What are the molecular changes? What are the cells that are causing this injury to the white matter? And what are the, the processes that are malfunctioning in the repair mm -hmm. uh, part of this? And we have two projects at our center, the Memory and Aging Center, but we're one of, the, of many centers that are studying uh, white matter. Mm -hmm. Maybe really quickly, we can talk about some of the problems that are associated with white matter changes. Now, we sort of mentioned how if you just scan lots of older people, most of them will have some signs of these changes in the brain, even though they're not having any overt symptoms. And so we consider those silent white matter changes. But there are some problems that have been associated with white matter changes. So we've talked about some problems with you know, memory and thinking, cognitive impairment, 
And if it gets bad enough, you know, we might diagnose it as dementia if people are starting to have difficulty managing daily life tasks. But there are also some other problems that have been associated with white matter changes. Can we review some of those for the audience? Yeah. So cognition as a whole, um, we divide it up into these different domains. The reality is that thinking is, is a holistic process and all these different domains are actually connected to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really can't place different uh, cognitive functions or these uh, cognitive domain functions in different regions of the brain. But as a whole, I think of white matter as connections. And, and in the same way, it's essentially shuttling of information or connecting different parts of the brain in order to come up with brain functions. Mm-hmm. And so a very direct um, consequence of changes in connectivity has to do with the speed at which information is processed. Mm. So the very first thing could potentially be slowing in processing speed. So ability to, to come up, say, with a word or recall a memory, but more time needed. And also potentially more, more vulnerable a process. So if you're trying to come up with that word or come up with that memory, distractions could be more of a hurdle uh, and, and a disruption in that process. And so one can say that memory formation is necessarily impaired, but that retrieval of the information is, is impaired. And so for all purposes, that person's experience would be memory impairment. Right. Right. But if they were in the right situation with the right amount of time, relaxation, no stress, they could potentially come up with that piece of information that they're trying to retrieve. Right. And that's also part of what's sort of considered normal age associated declines in processing speed and inability to focus attention. But there are some also sort of problems that are less obviously related to Cognition. So one of the ones that I think about, because it comes up so much for us in geriatrics, is problems with walking and balance, right? Right. Falls. And I believe those have been associated with white matter changes as well, right? Yeah. So here's where you realize that essentially white matter is a really critical part of the brain and all of the brain. And so we not, not only have cognition, but we have motor function, we have sensory processing, we have vision and hearing um, and, and skin sensation. And if, if the white matter gets affected, it typically actually gets affected in a more diffuse manner, although you could see scarring in specific regions. What we're also starting to realize is that the rest of the white matter that is not scarred is not is also not completely normal uh, with more sensitive brain imaging measures that we have so it's not surprising that balance which is which is incorporating a lot of different input from different regions of the brain could be affected gait speed is another one you know we would walk slower but i think it's hard to say that it's the white matter um and and that's because with the white matter changes also occurs all sorts of other changes in brain structures that are age dependent. Mm. So it's hard to say that, but, but at the very least, it could be what we call a potential biomarker, you know? So, so something that, that is changing with the change in symptoms, but may not necessarily be the cause of it or the closest 
cause of it. Right. Yeah. Well, from a clinical perspective, I would say, you know, that sometimes an, an older person has been having some falls, maybe also some changes in memory and thinking that seem more than we would expect for their age. And so they get a brain MRI. Mm-hmm. I have to say in geriatrics, we're less likely, I think, to order those. <laughs> but, but, you know, or maybe it happens because, you know, they were in the emergency room and then it shows moderate white matter changes. And so then the question is, oh, is this why they're falling? Well, you could say yes or no. And, and it also- Well, I usually say it's maybe one of many reasons because so many things contribute to falls, but tell me what you say. <laughs> Right. And then that would be correct. There's no way to disprove that. Um, I, I think it depends on what kind of what level of causation you're thinking about. So I think white matter hyperintensities, the one thing that we could say is that if you have white matter hyperintensities in your brain, it's certainly not I could reassure the patient and say this is completely normal. It's normal aging. But we can't say that aging is good for the brain, right? So seeing white matter hyperintensities, again, is for me that tip of the iceberg where, where you're getting signs of brain aging. You're seeing signs of some scarring. But the reason why they're having balance issues and falls may not be directly related to why their myelin or, or the, the glia around it or are, are damaged or 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 that their blood vessels have become leaky. It may not be directly related to that, but it's telling you that their brain has aged and that there may be potentially a process that's ongoing that is damaging to brain structures in general. And, and that the, the, the areas of the brain, the multiple areas of the brain that are contributing to their balance could also be affected. Mm-hmm. But but a balance problem, as as you know, and and frequently have encountered, is actually could, potentially could be an inner ear problem, right? Right. So it could be, and 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 that inner ear problem could be related to aging because that that part of our body also ages. So age is really the all encompassing cause, and I think we're trying to tease it apart. And one of the components that age is white matter. But, but it's one that I think is really important because it's the connection between all different regions of the brain. And so it affects symptoms quite extensively, although it could be subtle mm-hmm. and over a long number of years. So one would not really realize um, and know about it. And I, I think you're going to get to that later in this podcast, but there's some treatable causes, right? Well, well, let's talk about those. Yeah. I mean, so if a person does have some white matter changes and they're having maybe some symptoms or difficulties that, as we said, it can be hard to determine whether they're exactly caused just by those white matter changes or by other things, but what kinds of things, or I guess, do we know of anything that can help prevent the progression or otherwise, you know, treat these? Yes. So there are untreatable causes of white matter changes and those Aging. Aging for one. <laughs> but, um, but the age, so let's take the age dependent because we could go down the line of leukodystrophies and that's a whole other ballgame, right? It's genetic diseases of white matter, all mm-hmm. sorts of different mm-hmm. things. And that could be like a podcast in of itself. And those but, are relatively uncommon too, right? 
Um, yeah, and we don't know how common or uncommon they are, but they're certainly, most certainly less common than aging. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you would kind of know the age, you know, the age distribution, there are a lot of factors that dissociate them from the age dependent white matter changes. So taking the, the age dependent white matter changes, the, the main intervenable causes are vascular because neurology is a relatively young field compared to cardiology. And we have a lot of um, knowledge that we've acquired with regards to systemic vascular health. And the good part of uh, brain vascular health is that we can carry over some of that knowledge and preventive medicine into that etiology. So the very first thing that uh, one would need to understand is, is their blood pressure too high? Mm-hmm. And the critical component of that is not a blood pressure that is just measured in, in the doctor's office every few months or every few weeks, but, um, and you would know this better, I don't know how many measurements, but uh, quite a few more measurements done at home. Mm-hmm. And I would say potentially on a daily basis for a period of two weeks so that we get a sense of how their blood pressure is fluctuating and whether it goes too high too often. Because hypertension is probably one of the biggest risk factors for white matter diseases due to vascular change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it puts a lot of pressure on the inside of blood vessels and can lead to all kinds of damage and irritation. Exactly. And then the second one is lipids. And here it's, um, it's become a tricky field because of people's concerns with regards to the medication, lipid-lowering medications. Right, so cholesterol-lowering medications. Yeah, cholesterol-lowering medications. And that is another very, very important vascular risk factor that can be intervened on. We have a lot of you know, lifestyle changes and medications that could help with that. Mm-hmm. So getting a, a cholesterol-lipid panel and understanding where, where those are and then also working up um, at the end of the spectrum, you have diabetes, but glucose control. And so that's getting a sense of, you know, whether their, their glucose goes too high too often. And so they don't have frank diabetes and they don't need a medication, but they would need some lifestyle modifications. And then last, but really certainly not least, is just optimizing vascular health in a holistic you know, robust way by increasing their exercise, which affects, you know, glucose metabolism and, and blood pressure regulation, heart rate regulation, um, and can be very impactful on vascular health. Right. And therefore these white matter changes. And then there's also things like getting enough sleep, because I know that not enough sleep has been associated with increased heart disease. It also seems to be a stressor, I guess, for the body or the cells, and then stress management too. Absolutely. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention sleep apnea, mm-hmm. which is a huge risk factor for both vascular and white matter changes. Um, and so doing a sleep study, if they have significant white matter changes, because we don't necessarily know that we have sleep apnea. It's right. uh, much more prevalent um, than and we know, and, and that would make it so that they would have a duration of sleep that seems adequate, but they're not actually getting the quality of spe- sleep that they would need for their brain health. 
Mm-hmm. Now, when I wrote my article about cerebral small vessel disease a few years ago and researched it, it seemed that the evidence on modifying blood pressure and other risk factors was a little bit mixed and might even be related a little bit to how old a person was, that it seemed more promising when people were younger and less promising when they were older, say, in their 80s or already had significant dementia. Is that still the best state of research? or Because that is a question, you know, sort of how hard should we work on this? And it depends a little bit on the context of the person's life and situation. It absolutely is. And I think it started with just realization that there are these uh, pretty robust epidemiological studies that have been done and where we get completely opposite results. And that has to do with the physiology um, of vascular and vascular health and the relationship with these risk factors. So if someone has high blood pressure and they're in their 40s, you can potentially call it a risk factor or if they have sleep apnea. After a while, it's no longer a risk factor if the changes have already occurred. And so if the scars have happened, as you were saying, yeah, the scars or, or if the vascular, potentially the scars haven't occurred, but the vascular changes. So the blood vessels are sick, right? Mm -hmm. So they've seen a blood pressure that's too high or sleep apnea has occurred for too long. Their lipids have been too high. And so you have structural changes to the blood vessels that have already occurred. And so they no longer um, have the same relationship to these uh, clinical factors. So if your blood vessels have thickened or even the lumen has gotten smaller and little blood is getting through, well, maybe dropping your blood pressure too low can be actually quite risky mm. because if you go too low and, and your flow is already diminished, well, maybe you're going to decrease your perfusion further. And right now, we don't actually know how to, I'll use the term, uh, the term precision medicine, how to precisely fine tune someone's blood pressure to their age, to their past history of changes and pathology, um, and all these different personalized factors. So I would say our data is pretty solid to the 70s. Right. Mm -hmm. And because most of our research populations are really younger than our actual general population, uh, we don't have a lot of healthy 90 year olds participating in research. So, knowledge of what, where their blood pressure should be is um, a little bit of an art um, mm -hmm. of the clinician rather than data driven. Right. And this is something that we have realized as a research, um, as researchers, and we're trying to address. We're trying to do better by each decade of age to have a better understanding and not only by age, but really by personalized factors. So have what we call biomarkers, you know, so MRI is, could be considered a biomarker. These what matter heart rate intensities that you described so well in, in the beginning could be a biomarker, but then also use other imaging or even molecular markers in order to better understand each person's physiological state mm -hmm. and be able to, to tell them eventually, hopefully really in a few years or under a decade, be able to tell them your blood pressure needs to be between 100 and 120 or yours needs to be between 90 and 110 or yours needs to hover around 140. Don't go too low because of mm -hmm. this and that and that. Mm -hmm. And we're not there yet, but we, we have started developing tools and 
And we're trying to do this as fast as we can because I think it can have a huge impact if we're able to really fine tune some of the risk factors. Right. And now maybe we can talk a little bit about your clinical work at the UCSF Memory and Aging Center. So, you know, people are, of course, referred because they are often having problems with memory or some aspect of cognition. And I think often an MRI is part of the evaluation there. It's a specialized center designed for a more in-depth evaluation. So how often do those patients have white matter changes? And then how do you and your colleagues determine whether the problems they're having are due to the white matter changes or what we might even call vascular cognitive impairment, vascular dementia, versus something like Alzheimer's or another form of neurodegeneration? So um, we see patients in clinic and we see them in research and our evaluation, as you mentioned, is very, very similar, except that we have additional tools available to us in research. So I see, I do see a lot of patients in clinic that have uh, cognitive complaints. They could be subjective or objective. And the way we divide it is we test them. They don't actually have impairment on our cognitive testing, but they do have concerns. They have realized that their uh, functioning on a day-to-day has changed. And I And we believe that. And so what we offer to those patients is to follow them over time um, and continue to look at all these different types of markers that we have in order to to stay on top of the process and detect a change that we could potentially intervene on. But when it comes to white matter, the very first thing that, that I do in clinic is to do a vascular workup. Because as we just discussed, those are the only things that we have therapies for at the moment. And although we don't have the best of therapies in the world for small vessel disease, I think impacting blood pressure and all these other risk factors could also impact that. Mm-hmm. And then if they wanted, we actually have several research projects. One is the healthy aging, so they don't actually need to have disease or concerns. But if they wanted to contribute to research on aging and also um we we share we share the data so you know get serial MRIs and sort of understand how their brain structures and and the molecules that we're measuring are evolving. Some some people could be candidates for that. And we um, since two years ago we are one of the seven centers in the United States, um, part of the Mark VCID consortium, and this is an NIH funded consortium that is trying to to identify a more precise and accurate way of measuring vascular cognitive changes. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little more about that? Because people sometimes you know, want to know what kind of dementia is it? Is it Alzheimer's? Is it vascular? And my impression, especially as people get older, is that there's a lot of overlap. Maybe you can tell the audience a little bit what we mean by vascular cognitive impairment, vascular dementia, and how it you distinguish it from cognitive impairment related to Alzheimer's or Lewy body dementia or one of the other common causes? Sure. And uh, this is a pretty extensive topic. And if you wanted to do a podcast on all the neurodegenerative phenotypes at some point, I, I know we should do a it. separate one on the cognitive yeah. dementia. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, the way I, I think of vascular cognitive impairment is that it is vasculature is one of the most fundamental uh, parts of our brain, right? It's everywhere in all parts of the brain and damage to the vasculature. The blood vessel network, as uh, we might call yes, it. Yes. The blood vessel network could contribute 
to any of these categories that you just mentioned, Alzheimer's disease, um, brain aging that's a, a little bit less healthy than your typical uh, aging, Parkinson's disease, or another category, frontotemporal dementia. And so the vascular cognitive impairment can be quite a mixed bag, right? And so what we're trying to do is trying to have measures that are most closely related to vascular health that we, we get to quantify in all these different categories of degenerative disease and quantify the contributions of vascular damage to brain damage, regardless of, of what other types of damage is occurring in the brain. And the way we've classified Alzheimer's disease from Parkinson's disease, say, or frontotemporal dementia is by what we have observed on pathology at autopsy. Mm -hmm. So the accumulation of different types of protein um, in, in different regions of the brain have really formed the basis for the definition of these categories. But those are not really visible when we do these MRIs. I mean, that's what I tell people is that the MRI will show maybe a little bit of shrinkage, sometimes a little bit more in certain parts than others, depending on how it's done, which is, you know, can be suggestive of certain things, but that otherwise it doesn't really show us what is happening at that pathology level, which is how those diagnoses were initially developed. Exactly. It doesn't show that um, there are patterns of atrophy that are more common uh, in some of these uh, syndromes than others. But also we're, we're trying to develop molecular um, imaging markers mm -hmm. called PET scans where, right. where during the life of, a, of an individual, so we don't need to wait until autopsy, uh, we are able to detect some of these proteins in their brain mm -hmm. and increase our, um, the probability of, of their deficits or symptoms being caused by one disease rather than the other. But the, the vascular contribution is, for me, it's, it really spans the whole spectrum. Maybe uh, you can distinguish a category of vascular cognitive impairment where vascular damage has occurred, but these downstream or these other additional uh, protein accumulations or damage have not. Mm -hmm. Eventually, if you let the vascular disease progress, and this remains to be demonstrated or studied in a very thorough way, um, I believe that you could end up with these other damages. Right. And that vascular health, it would be a window of opportunity to prevent degenerative brain diseases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I have to say that's my personal opinion. <laughs> a lot of people may disagree. <laughs> well, the, the, the research is ongoing. Well, maybe I can ask you briefly two questions that have come up in, you know, the comments and questions on my own article. So one of them that has occasionally come up is the question of being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and then later being told that it's vascular and it's vascular Parkinsonism. And what does that mean and can it be treated? Is that a term that you and your colleagues are using? So I think the, the main point to, to um, clarify here is that 
when we classify these different disorders, we are classifying them based on symptoms primordially. I mean, for a long time and until now, we go by symptoms. So a cluster of different symptoms would form the basis of a clinical diagnosis. Right. Because we see people from the outside. Right. And, and with the advent of molecular biology techniques, we're trying to be more precise with regards to our diagnosis and try to come up with ways of increasing of our probability of, of a disease category, as opposed to what you would call a syndrome, which would be a cluster of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And the vascular Parkinsonism is what, what people are trying to say with that is that you have damage to parts of the brain that would give rise to the symptoms typically seen in Parkinson's disease. But the etiology is not the accumulation of a protein called synuclein, which happens in Parkinson's disease, but vascular. So the reason why damage has occurred to these structures of the brain is because a small little vessels there, or potentially even a larger vessel, is dysfunctional. And blood flow has been impaired or leakage has occurred, and there's been damage to that part. And so movement is rigid, you know, and you could potentially even have a tremor. Um, you could have all these different symptoms and that falls. Is- and- exactly. Mm-hmm. So typically, unless it's a one-sided stroke, um, typically in, in vascular Parkinsonism, there's more symmetry in symptoms than Parkinsonism, uh, than Parkinson's disease. But these, you know, I don't like when to stop it typically because you have a lot of atypical um, presentations. And so it takes, um, you, you know, it's an image. It's, it's the symptoms. It's the course of disease. It's someone's risk factors. And at the end of the day, one cannot 100% say that, well, you have vascular disease. And on top of that, now you have developed Parkinson's disease potentially. So we can't ever be 100% sure of that. Mm -hmm. But there are some features that could kind of dissociate the two. And then, you know, I think the medications for Parkinson's disease could also be tried. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it gets at the fact that these diagnoses are often, you know, challenging to get down to the very detailed level because usually we're not biopsying cells and looking at right. that point and that we we do our best and that part of it is giving it a little time to see how it evolves or trying a certain medication or treatment to see if there's a response. Right. And that would be the diagnostic therapeutic approach. You know, if you're really on the fence, well, try the medication that is available and see whether the patient responds. And if they respond, well, that is addressing some sort of imbalance that they would have. Mm -hmm. Right. And if they don't have the side effects, of course. Okay. So then another type of question, and this is probably the most common type of question I've had on the site related to this is people who are, uh, to my mind, younger, you know, often in their 40s, 50s, sometimes early 60s, who say that they've uh, lived a healthy life, that they don't have high blood pressure, they don't have diabetes, they're not overweight, they exercise, they eat well. And for some reason, they had a scan. It's not always clear whether there are symptoms or not. And they have these white matter changes. And why do they have them? And what should they do? And so I was hoping you could share some thoughts on that, especially for you know people who are under 60. Right, right. And I think that is actually, um, when you're under 60 and 
the white matter changes are subtle potentially, or even not subtle, but the symptoms are subtle. That's when you really want to find out what you can do to potentially stop or improve. I think twofold. And um, one, really, are are the risk factors really well controlled? And I think um, that brings up, again, not one blood pressure measurement at the doctor's office, but continuous measurement. Let's make sure that we have everything that we could potentially have under control, under control. Mm-hmm. And then here, you know, if they they are really interested in, in getting to uh, the bottom of it or, or even just getting closer to a potential answer. And sometimes we really have to say white matter diseases are, are hard to diagnose the etiology uh, for them because um, there are so many different things that cause them. In research, we have better tools, so we're getting closer, but I can't say that we'll know 100% uh, what is causing it. Mm -hmm. The practical approach would be at the top of the list, make sure that all the vascular stuff that are treatable are treatable. And then in research, we could do a little bit more to see whether there is not, you know, some sort of inflammation, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, that could be treated. Is this, you know, a late onset kind of presentation of multiple sclerosis? There are so many different things that could cause white matter changes that if a person was worried, I would recommend uh, getting the opinion of an, of an expert mm-hmm. to, to see whether they could just be reassured um, or whether more can be done. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you for addressing that. Well, this has been wonderfully helpful. So maybe just to wrap it up, we can, as you may know, a lot of people are very eager to maintain their brains as well as possible. I think especially as we get older, we realize just how important it is to enable us to, you know, live the fullest life possible and maintain our independence. And so based on all the work you've done, your research your clinical work, what would be some sort of closing recommendations you would make to the audience for people who want to prevent or slow down the white matter changes and and otherwise maintain their brains the best way possible? What are your favorite suggestions? Favorite suggestions is um, exercise. And maybe I should do a little bit more of that myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exercise. Yep. Exercise, exercise, exercise. Yeah. And what we say is, you know, an average of 150 minutes per week. Uh, We don't know exactly what kind of exercise, but do one that's sustainable and, you know, relatively enjoyable or not too painful, at least where where, um, you would be less likely to do it long term, because I think it's really long term exercise. It's not something that you can do like one day and then two months later, another Mm -hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Um, although that's still better than nothing, I would say. Um, so exercise and then a healthy diet. And, you know, what has some evidence is uh, the Mediterranean diet or mind diet. And this is sort of low in saturated fat, high in unsaturated fat. Lots of vegetables and fruits and fibers, if you tolerate them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and I actually like what you just mentioned, tolerate them. I think each person needs to figure out what is good for their body because I think down down the line, it's not going to be one diet fits all. Oh, definitely not. Because we are very different uh, from one another. So, uh, you know, just attention to diet, I would say. 
and then uh, making sure that um, they don't have hypertension that they don't know of, you know, that they don't have high um, cholesterol that they don't know of, uh, or and um, they don't have uh, dysregulation of their glucose metabolism that they don't know of. So, you know, right. their sugar is not running too high. And then this is sort of optimizing your vascular and overall health. And then, you know, socialization is, uh, um, can't be emphasized enough. I think having a healthy emotional life, which social interactions are a big part of mm-hmm. and, and cognitive function, you know, um, uh, that would also be stimulating. And again, here, uh, research is being done on what kind of cognitive function. I have a colleague, Caitlin Castelletto, that is trying to determine what, you know, what kind of cognitive function, what combination of cognitive function and exercise would be optimal. So we don't mm-hmm. have the answers yet. But I would say, again, cognitive functioning that is um, enjoyable and sustainable. And then you mentioned sleep and sleep apnea. Oh, yes. Get good sleep and make sure you don't have sleep apnea. <laughs> Get good sleep. And and what you mentioned, I think stress management is also really important because stress is one of those things that actually impacts physiology in a, in a pretty um, profound way, profound way. Mm -hmm. So potentially the combination of these uh, factors that folks can work on and control could impact stress as well. Right. Um, So a regular exercise regimen, social um, support uh, and interactions and diet and could impact and sleep could impact stress. Okay, great. Well, um, thank you so very much, Fanny, for these suggestions. These are really fantastic. Now, is UCSF still recruiting for some, the Memory Center recruiting for some of these healthy aging studies? Is there a link we could share in the show notes for that? Absolutely. I'll send you a link. So there's a healthy aging study and we are trying to expand the age group. So if you are uh, young, uh, if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I don't want to say when young stops. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, we we we've expanded. So um, so please, if you're interested, uh, come and participate. And then we have a specific study where we're looking at vascular uh, biomarkers, and uh, for that, you can be cognitively uh, completely normal and healthy and have vascular disease or not. You know, we have different categories. So we also need people that don't have significant amount of vascular disease as well. Okay. I'll send you both of those links. So yes. And we'll share those in the show notes. And otherwise, if people have questions, follow-up questions, they can post in the comments and I'll see if you can help me answer them. And then otherwise, you're the first person actually from the Memory and Aging Center, UCSF, but I have always been very fond of that center. I rotated through it as a geriatrics fellow years ago and just such amazing work done there. And so it's been really great to have you come and talk about this aspect of it. And maybe at some point we'll have you or one of your colleagues come back to tell us even more about brain health because eternally interesting and just so important to the well-being of older people. So thank you so much, Fanny. Thank you, Leslie. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes 
and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.